from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this Independence Day weekend. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. The U.S. acreage debate gets answers. Overall, I think it's a surprise that total acreage it just isn't there. We've lost about 14.4 million acres since 2014. We have a full breakdown of the report and reaction from market analysts. A rancher in the West outlines the dire drought. In the last 15 months uh, combined, we're, st- we're barely at three inches of precip in 15 months. Our annual for 12 months is nine inches. As weather worries will heat up for some throughout July. I really don't have much good news at all for the Western US. One meteorologist says the wetter weather recently will get most of the corn crop through key pollination time. And in John's world. Advice from an explosives enthusiast. Now for the news, fireworks in the markets. The USDA issuing its big acreage report this week, and it did provide some answers to the acreage debate. Joining us now to break down those numbers and capture complete analysis is Farm Journal's Clinton Griffiths from our South Bend studios. Clinton? All right, thanks, Tyne. After a wild ride in June that saw a historic drop in soybeans, the market's shooting limit up Wednesday thanks to those new numbers. Now let's get started with the acreage report. USDA calling for 92.7 million acres of corn this year. That's up 2% from last year. Soybeans, they come in at 87.6 million acres, up 5%. Wheat, estimated at 46.7 million acres, also up 5%. Checking what's still in the bin for corn, USDA estimates that there are 4.11 billion bushels. That's down 18% from June of last year. Soybeans, we're seeing 767 million bushels, down a whopping 44%. Wheat, right now, sitting at 844 million bushels, down 18%. Joining us to discuss in depth, we've got Brian Doherty, Total Farm Marketing, and Arlen Suderman with StoneX. Uh, let's start with this acreage numbers uh, that just came out. Arlen, from your perspective, uh, is this a surprise? Is this what we expected? Well, the corn acreage number is exactly what I expected. I was just a tad higher than them. Uh, the soybean acreage, I think, was a bigger surprise to me. We had all the incentive in the world to plant as much as possible. I did expect the number. I had pulled down my expectations a little bit because of the late wheat harvest, cutting back on uh, double cropping of, of soybeans behind wheat, especially in the southern Midwest. Uh, but overall, I think it's a surprise that total acreage it just isn't there. We've lost about 14.4 million acres since 2014, most of that in the plain states. Farmers had every incentive to plant as much as what they could, but yet these numbers are consistent enough with the March 31 numbers that the trade's gonna accept them. That's what we're gonna go with. Brian, I think as we talk about incentives, right, uh, the price incentive was there to plant fence row to fence row. What is your takeaway from the acreage estimates that we just got? Yeah, that's a great observation. There, there certainly was. I think particularly in corn, there was incentive to, to push the acres. Um, the, the rally we talked about occurred throughout April into the early part of May, and weather was dry. Farmers were making great planting progress. So when you look at that higher price than a year ago, higher price than in fall, good winter rally, you might expect that farmers might really push that corn acre number in particular, because I think farmers, my opinion is they, they prefer to plant corn 
for beans, even though beans had a strong economic incentive as well. So a uh, bit of a surprise that the corn acre wasn't higher. Yeah. Arlen, as we talk about, uh, you know, these planted acres, and we start to look at some of the areas of the country that are still very dry, the, the northern plains, Minnesota, parts of Wisconsin, does that add an element of risk here? It does, because we've really shifted the Corn Belt to the north and to the west over the last 10 to 15 years. So that area is critical. And what we've done is we've mapped out those counties that are 20 million bushels or more in production last year. And of course, remember, we had millions of acres in the Dakotas that were prevent plant last year. That's where we got a lot of our new acres. And so we've really shifted that west. So if you look at where it's dry versus where it's wet, we're anticipating above trend yields in the east, below trend yields in the west. How do they balance out? I was in the middle. But if you draw the line between the two, there are far more of those high production concentrated counties west of that line in the drier area. So it's going to be a lot easier if this weather pattern holds to be a drag on that national trend yield than it is to boost it higher. And I think that kind of transition us, uh, transitions us very nicely into the grain stocks report. Brian, as we take a look at those numbers, um, you know, Compared to a year ago, obviously lower, but compared to last month, what's your takeaway? Yeah, you, you got to look at a number of variables. One, demand has just been stronger than than I think the USDA has been accrediting the count or the market for. So, so that's one thing. Two, I think we go back to 2019, 2020, and the disruption with some of the production. Those easy numbers to count when you have drought in August. Go back to 19, all that wet weather quality issues. All of those things come out of the wash somewhere, and they they generally do down the road on stocks reports. So again, a confirmation, a continuation of tighter inventory, tighter supply based on these most current estimates. Arlen, as we look at this setup, especially in the grain stocks, uh, where, where does this take us through 2021 in our production? Well, it means that trend yields are, let me put it this way, it means that we have to get something close to a record corn yield this year as, as well as the soybean yield. And, and that's not likely, it's just not the margin for error. And uh, it means we're gonna be rationing soybean demand in the year ahead. Uh, the market certainly responded in that way initially. I think the market gets it. It's gonna make traders reluctant to be short. And from an end user standpoint, it certainly puts a lot of risk before them meaning they need to be pricing the dips when they happen, taking advantage of price breaks as they happen, that they have more upside risk than downside risk if we continue in this current weather pattern. Arlen, real quick, uh, on a feed wheat perspective, this says we're feeding wheat, right? It does. And one thing I'm looking for is maybe a bearish surprise in the corn stocks report on September 30th. And when I think we get a better handle on how much wheat we're feeding, this report should increase the amount of wheat we're feeding. We've got a nice winter wheat crop with lower protein, fits into the feed stream very well. And I think that'll show up and maybe show up a lower corn, a higher corn stocks on September 30th. All right, y'all stick around with us. We'll be back uh, in the second half hour to discuss where we go from here. For now, let's turn it back over to Tyne Morgan. Thanks, Clinton. And he'll rejoin us for more market analysis coming up later on the show. But first, as the market has its sights set on weather, Mike Hoffman digs into the latest forecast next.
Meteorologist Mike Hoffman joins us now with weather. Mike, happy Independence Day weekend. You know, June had no shortage of severe weather, but as we head into July, it's the haves and the have-nots when it comes to moisture. Does any of that change this month? Good morning, Tyne. Happy 4th of July weekend to you as well. You know, for a lot of the country, we're not going to see big changes in the weather pattern. But what I can say is I don't see a repeat of this wet pattern that we had. I wanted to show you the estimated rainfall for the seven day period through this past Thursday. Just amazing amounts. Look at that strip of extremely heavy rain from eastern New Mexico, western Texas, but especially into northeastern and north central Oklahoma, southeastern Kansas, into central Missouri. Everything in purple there is eight inches plus. And then four, five, six, seven inches moved on up into northern Indiana and southwestern Michigan as well. So that was an amazing period of uh, rain. Uh, some of those areas needed some rain, but that's obviously a little bit too much. There's our root zone moisture, and boy, you can see it's, uh, it's changed a lot in the last uh, week. It's all blue over most of Michigan, and you can see that strip of moisture basically is uh, where a lot of the blue is located, but it's been uh, wet through the southern Mississippi Valley for quite some time. Very dry western Pennsylvania into parts of the northeast. Still very dry eastern north and south uh, Dakota. And you can see portions of western Minnesota getting into that. And, of course, the west continues to be extremely dry. Now, the longer-term drought monitor, then, uh, we uh, still see a dry area uh, north of the I-80 corridor. But I have the feeling some of that will get cut back once we see the new, newest drought monitor. And this has gone away a little bit over the far northern plains. It's not nearly as expansive as it was, but it's still bad in some areas, especially North Dakota. And in the southwestern quadrant of the country, obviously remains extremely dry. So let's check out uh, as we look at the jet stream. You can see uh, moving through the rest of this weekend that trough in the northeast moves away, but it kind of gets replaced again by the middle of the week. We start to see another trough digging in and one more into the Great Lakes in the northeast as we head through the end of the week. <clears throat> so still a ridge over the western parts of the country, but we see little uh, ripples coming through it. And so there may be some opportunities to get some rain through the Canadian border area, but I don't see a lot. A little better chance as it comes farther to the east. And you can see that uh, trough kind of uh, digs in a little bit as we head into next Sunday. So 30 day outlook for temperatures below normal. South central states, northeast, uh, north central, northwest and west above normal temperatures. Let's go on beyond that. August above normal northeast, most of the west below normal southern Mississippi Valley. September then will split the country in half normal east above normal west. As far as precipitation is concerned, 30-day outlook uh, shows uh, northern plains, unfortunately, northwest still below normal, above normal from the Four Corner region all the way to the Atlantic seaboard and going beyond that for the overall 90 days. East Texas to the Atlantic coast above normal, below normal for the northern plains into the Pacific Northwest. Tyne? Thanks, Mike. Well, in the west, the water situation is dire. We'll talk to a rancher next. Well, as U.S. grapples with drought, the dire drought in California is creating growing concerns. And as one rancher tells reporter Stephanie Elam, the drought's historic and it's the worst he's ever seen. 
Living in southern Utah, cattle rancher T.J. Atkin is used to dry conditions. I can't control Mother Nature. But the current dryness is more punishing than anything he's ever seen. How long has it been since you've had any meaningful rain here? <laughs> in the last 15 months, uh, combined, we're, st we're barely at three inches of precip in 15 months. And what would you normally see? Uh, our annual for 12 months is nine inches. For generations, his family has raised cattle on the same 210,000 acres in northwestern Arizona. I either got to haul water or I've got to, I'll take them to town and, and feed them for the next three months. Atkin drove us out to the rugged, arid terrain of his ranch. With temperatures well above 100 degrees, there were just a few signs of life until some of his cows came into view. But just some, because there's not enough water out here to sustain them all. I've relocated 80% already. I've sold some of them. Atkins' water woes aren't his alone. Take a look at this U.S. drought monitor map. The darker the color, the worse the drought. Atkins Ranch lies deep within that crimson red. We have about 200 reservoirs and uh, every one of them is dry right now. Like dry? Dry. Never. We, Nothing? Not, we don't have a drop in any one of them and we've never done that in 85 years. Never once. Atkins operation is in the Colorado River Basin, which is primarily fed by melting snowpack from the western Rocky Mountains. The river then winds down to the Gulf of California, supplying water to seven states along the way. But the basin is now in its 22nd year of drought. This is clearly evident further downriver at the end of the Nevada-Arizona border where the river flows into Lake Mead, the largest reservoir in the nation, which 25 million people depend on for water. Has it ever been this low before? It hasn't, not since filling in 1937. So we are anticipating the lower basin to be in the first ever uh, shortage condition in history. In fact, Lake Mead is 143 feet below full capacity and has shed a mind-boggling 5.5 trillion gallons of water in the last 20 years. Those low water levels mean power generation at the Hoover Dam is down 25 percent. No one can really tell with any certainty, but we can all hope that the future uh, will be wetter. For his part, Atkin is hoping for a wet monsoon season this summer to replenish his dry ponds and keep his cattle business afloat. We could catch more water in one week than we've caught in three years. But if not, he predicts the entire country will be impacted by this unprecedented western drought. It's such a large area. I mean, it's almost half of the United States now. If this goes one more year, it'll have a huge effect on everyone. Now, farmers in those areas have also made tough choices, some choosing not to plant certain crops this year. Well, when we come back, John Phipps has an Independence Day message. John Phipps joins us this Independence Day weekend with an important reminder. I had decided to do a sort of public service announcement regarding using fireworks in locations experiencing drought, but several inches of rain over several states have rendered that moot for many of you. That said, if you do have dry lawns, parched hay stubble, and acres of ripening wheat, please consider this advice. 
Fire can do weird and unexpected things. Don't ask me how I know this. I've burned up a grain truck and a tractor and seen a swath of ready to harvest corn go up in flames and none of them were from natural causes. Combined with fickle or strong winds, a happy holiday can go south in a hurry. Also, explode sober. The mixture of alcohol and gunpowder seldom ends well. You might want to lock up your pets in the garage. Ponder the weather forecast carefully. Both wind speed and direction are critical, especially with the newer fan-type fireworks. If you're wondering if the wind is too high, it's too high. Finally, no matter how much they ask, and I'm looking at you, grandparents, don't have little kids around the launch area. Let me add something I only recently found out. It's really, really hard to add blue color to fireworks. Watch carefully and you'll notice something that the Chinese have known for over a thousand years. Blue remains a mystery to be solved for fireworks manufacturers. You may see some this year, but it won't be as bright as the other colors. Our family likes to use fireworks non-traditionally, Thanksgiving, anniversaries, Arbor Day, or just to lure the grandchildren out to the farm. The biggest complaint we have from our relatively distant neighbors is not notifying them beforehand so they can watch themselves. I was curious to see if this illogical blowing up of money had suffered that much from the pandemic and trade war and downturn. Like I'll demonstrate in a future show, the trade war didn't make much of a dent at all. This graph shows our average monthly imports of fireworks and it looks like sales are rapidly returning to normal, which is a steady growth. I'll leave you with this last admonition. Pick up the debris the next morning and discard the used containers in the garbage. Don't burn them. Again, don't ask me how I know this. Fireworks are one of the few advantages we have on the farm compared to urban living. Don't blow that up. Thanks, John. And when we come back, it's an American tribute to some American iron. That's next. Hey, welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. This week, we're going to journey out to Massachusetts to check out a 1941 John Deere A that's still in its work clothes. And interestingly enough, out of my 20 antique tractors, this is the only John Deere that I have. I just uh, got this back after I uh, bought it three years ago and uh, had some difficulties getting it running and uh, friends of mine helped me out and finally got it there. So I had a ball driving this thing this morning and uh, hope to come back when the rain stops and play around with it some more. I do what I call slowing life down to five miles an hour and uh, that's where the antique tractors really uh, are therapeutic for me. and. Uh, I love driving around my small town in uh, Massachusetts here and uh, visiting people and uh, going to uh, antique shops and going to the local uh, restaurants and just drive up in my tractor and just enjoy it. And it's, uh, it's a good way to spend a Sunday morning. This one is 100% uh, is running. Uh, it, uh, you know, the, the hitch needs a little, hydraulics need a little work. Uh, we're gonna play around with those a little bit, but this is ready for me to uh, enjoy for a while before I take it all apart and uh, restore it. It'll be on the list of things to done, but this, it's a long list. So it came from uh, Northern Massachusetts. A guy I know who's a scrapper brought it to me. Like he brings most of the tractors that he gets first. So I get him to look at them first before he scraps them. I saved this from the scrap pile. 
and I'm so glad I did because somebody had paid a lot of attention to this. There's a lot of stainless steel bolts on this with never seize on them. Uh, somebody really put some thought and care into this machine, which I and I saw that immediately and knew that this was worth saving, and uh, I'm glad I did. It's uh, definitely going to be fun. Well, dire drought in the west to relentless rains across some of the Midwest last week. Up next, we'll check in with leading ag meteorologists to see if those patterns will extend into the rest of July. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Welcome back this Independence Day weekend. Well, for the markets right now, it's all about the weather. June ended on a wet note for much of the Midwest, a trend that could continue. But it's a different story in the Dakotas and out west, as meteorologists say July could expand the extremes. Flooded fields in Missouri to monsoon rains causing flash floods across the Midwest. What started out as a dry June saw an extreme finish. I can assure you heading forward that there are going to be some areas running right through the heart of the Midwest that are going to be a little bit too wet by the time we get to the 4th of July. A soggy finish for some with rain relief for others and dryness parked over the northern Corn Belt and the entire West. I would say that the best forecast for July is persistence, meaning what you see now is what you get. Hot weather in the West, mostly dry except for a few monsoon showers, the Midwest a big gradient between dry and hot in the north and west, cooler and wetter as you move to the south and east. For farmers in the Pacific Northwest, it's a double dose of record heat and muted moisture creating concerns. Typically, we might get one, you know, one day a year over 100 maybe, and maybe get maybe 15 days that are over 90. But uh, we could have 15 days in a row that are over 90 degrees which is which is unheard of. Oregon farmer Dan Lewis says March through May moisture was short, prompting his area to irrigate early. But on the eastern part of the state, I'm hearing stories of, of growers that have some things on dry land fields that have literally just dried up. The worst news is that the hot weather is expected to continue virtually throughout the West all through the summer and into the autumn months. As record heat is already in the books in the Northwest, it's taking its toll on crops. These areas are already incredibly suffering. Rangeland and pastures, winter wheat, spring sown crops are all in dire shape. And this is going to be the finishing touch on those crops. It's going to be the final nail. And we're just not going to have much small grain production coming out of the Northwest because of this punishing spring and early summer heat and drought. And Rippy says July shows little rain relief for that area. On into the rest of the summer. I'm not seeing a whole lot of relief coming in the way of the far upper Midwest and the Northern Plains. The Northern Plains seeing some of its worst crop condition ratings on record for crops like spring wheat and barley. We're seeing our lowest crop conditions of the century, which is only two decades old, but still lowest crop conditions of the century for spring wheat, for barley across the Northern Plains. As the Northern Plains stays dry, meteorologists expect July to bring more chances of rain to much of the Midwest. Iowa seems to be kind of ground zero for that transition zone. We're likely to stay a bit on the dry side in the far north and west, but as you move to southeastern Iowa, 
probably going to be too wet. But here's the thing. We're going to be adding so much moisture to the soil that as we dry down and heat up, we're going to pull the moisture back out of the soil and create more shower and thunderstorm activity. Drew Lerner of World Weather says that could help aid much of the corn crop through pollination. We'll put enough moisture in the ground to support corn development through at least the middle of July. Now we may dry down after that if there's no additional moisture, but I kind of have my doubts it's going to be absolutely dry. Lerner expects favorable weather in states like Indiana, Ohio, Kentucky, and eastern Illinois, with far northern Iowa, the Dakotas, and Minnesota to see the opposite in July. About one-third of the corn belt is probably going to be subjected to some stressful conditions and will lose a little yield. The farther northwest you go, the more dramatic that'll be. But places like Illinois and Indiana, will have some very nice yields, I think. Eric Snodgrass, atmospheric scientist with Nutrient Ag Solutions, says the June rains helped relieve crop stress in those key areas. This wet weather we finished June with buys a lot of time. So we've kicked the can down the road that we're worried about drought across a broad sector of the Midwestern Corn Belt. He says as the wet weather pushes the drought threat deeper into the season for that area, this year's crops aren't in the clear yet. That doesn't mean we can't get problems in the month of July. And I'll tell you something, if you want to know when those problems are going to arise, watch the Aleutian Islands and watch south of Greenland. Because in between if those two areas set up with ridges, we tend to get one right here in the midsection of the country as well. We call it the triple ridge pattern, and it could bring us a drier time period in July. But even if it turns off dry for the Midwestern Corn Belt, the recent moisture means crops are better equipped to withstand it. Some of the great holding capacity that our soils have could allow us to endure, especially through pollination, some of the issues we could get with drier conditions once we get out there into that second, third week of July. That's as the southeast braces for what's expected to be an active hurricane season. Most long range forecasts are between 100 and 150 percent of normal on this upcoming hurricane season. And what's crazy is don't forget the peak of that hurricane season is September 15. So we, we, we are just at the very beginning of it and we've got time to be watching for quite a bit of activity. And for the far west, I really don't have much good news at all for the Western U.S. The outlook is dreary. We've already seen our sixth largest modern wildfire in Arizona state history. The Telegraph Fire east of Phoenix has burned over 180,000 acres. And that's, I, th I think, unfortunately, a sign of things to come. Snodgrass says the wildfire risks are a grave concern. Well, the problem was, was the past winter ranked fifth driest on record. So we almost need two full winters worth of precipitation just to get back to normal. And the likelihood of that happening without an El Nino developing is relatively limited. From drought in the west to rains in the east, July is shaping up to be another month of wild weather. That's as farmers in the northwest hope to hold on to what they have. Well, when we come back, Glenn Griffiths picks back up the marketing discussion this Independence Day weekend. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. I'm Clinton Griffiths uh, talking with our guest today, Brian Doherty of Total Farm Marketing and Arlen Suderman of StoneX. Thank you both for being here today. Obviously a big report this past week, uh, a couple big reports that came out. Uh, Brian, as we look at, at what the market did and the way that it reacted to our acreage and our quarterly grain stocks reports, what does that tell you about what this market has intention-wise uh, for the future? 
Yeah, there's a, there's a couple takeaways that that I would argue right now, and it's really a wake up call to the end user first of all that that when we see price pullbacks, even if we get a fall low where prices drop, expect that farmer selling is going to be minimal, and two, you should be you should be shifting that risk as an end user. You should be looking at at ways to to make sure and secure inventory. Things are going to get really tight now. It's only June 30th, so there's a lot of weather. In fact, the more critical weather ahead for both corn and soybeans. So it's really a wake-up call to the importing countries as well, given the tight world supplies, given this week's news of some frost in Brazil. Things are getting tighter. It was confirmed today the market wasted little time in reacting. Farmers will be reluctant sellers on price dips for some time. Arlen, did the market reaction surprise you on Wednesday? Uh, not at all. When you're looking at the larger position limits this year, when we're looking at how much money is into the marketplace this year, uh, money supply being high and a lot of that's making its way into the markets, we anticipated that we'd see big price swings in both directions this year. Computers are controlling the vast uh, majority of the daily trade and uh, many of them, the algos are using very similar formulas. So it's a herd mentality. Uh, it's going to go big in both directions whenever it does go. And so not really surprised, particularly when you look at what this report or these reports do for the risk of the markets and what they need to price in. I think that's uh, the main thing here that we continue to follow is what's what does the risk look like to the rest of this growing season? Brian, as we talk about that and we start to to kind of follow this market along, how much uh, obviously weather continues to be one of the main drivers and it has been most of this year. It is, and Ireland pointed this out, that when you look at the Northwest Territory of the Midwest, um, that's a crop that is, is struggling, and it's now June 30th. It's not June 15th. It's not June 5th. Uh, that's a crop that needs uh, some relief and some moisture soon. So if that, that doesn't happen, uh, the question is, you know, whether, whether or not this central region that received much beneficial moisture can make of the difference. Maybe it can, maybe it won't. But again, I go back to the idea that, that this is a, a report that, again, re, reaffirms to farmers, don't sell in the weakness, be reluctant sellers. So that part of the um, equation on market movement probably is lacking where other years historical tendency for prices to really come under pressure this time of the year so i'm not saying that it can't happen but the odds are starting to stack up against that particularly if weather is less than ideal in the last in the next 30 to 60 days arlen we saw probably 10 inches of rain in my house in northern indiana just in a five days time uh, and that was a big wide band across the center part of the country how much is weather going to play on this market going forward it's going to be a debate over the next 30 to 60 days uh, on how the good balances with the bad and that's why if you're living in the east you're thinking oh this is going to be a huge crop if you're living in the west you're thinking it's going to be a total disaster and the two are going to balance each other out the question is how they come about and that's going to be the ongoing debate that's going to continue here right on into the july the august crop report and into september when we get some good hard field data then finally in the september uh was the report but at this point it's easier to push yields below trend than it is above trend uh, when you look at the national numbers and so i think that's going to be the bias right now my yield models at uh, 176.4 you know correlation this early with a yield model isn't that high but i really like that at this point it's trending lower yes but uh I, th I think that assesses well the balance between the good in the East and the poor in the West. 
but that's going to be trending lower if this weather pattern holds. Brian, talk to me a little bit about some of the end user things that you follow, in particular dairy. How is the dairy market setting up? And, and you know, obviously from a, a feed uh, demand and feed uses standpoint, this continues to be something they're watching closely. Well, they, they should watch it closely. We've got more supply. So if you're just a dairy, just watch the dairy. We saw production up over 4% last month. That's on top of a couple adjusted upward months prior to that, more cows. So they kind of got away with it. I'm going to say the dairy. The dairy producer had decent crops last year, got away with plenty of ample feed, or they had an opportunity to buy it at cheaper levels or hedge it off. Uh, it's a different ball game right now. You really need to be strategic in how you're going to approach this. So I think there's a heightened sense of urgency and certainty and when you get to this time of the year I, I would encourage dairy producers to really think about even though prices are high contracting better to have the bird in hand than the trying to chase supplies if we run into another July or August like last year where it just turns hot and dry um, look at the west uh, as Ireland said you've got a tail of two crops right now if that permeates eastward it'll be a lot easier to start penciling a lower yield in corn and soybeans the market will ration that through higher prices. Arlen, real quick, from a hog perspective, that's been a pretty dynamic market. Uh, we've got just a few seconds here. What it, what's your take on where we're headed? Yeah, I think the big key for the hogs is we know feed costs are going to be high, so we need to maintain that strong demand for product. Will we maintain the demand into China, other countries that's been strong? And what about the domestic man? Now that the pipeline's been refilled with the restaurants, will we find a leveling off at a higher level of demand than pre-pandemic? All right. I want to thank you both for being here and joining us on U.S. Farm Report. Great conversation. Really appreciate the insights as always. And those at home, stick around. We'll be back with more U.S. Farm Report coming up. Well, whether it was the 4th of July celebration or the local fair, carousels were a highlight for many families. And one Kansas town is preserving that history as we travel the American countryside this weekend with Andrew McRae. C.W. Parker moved from Illinois to Kansas as a boy. He married and began a family in Abilene. One day, an old carousel came to town, and C.W.'s daughter wanted to ride it. It took most of his grocery money to allow her to ride, but that carousel was an inspiration. He also knew that device was a money-making device, and he went out and found one and bought it. Parker was mechanically inclined and decided he could build a better carousel than what he'd purchased, so he began a business building and selling carousels. By 1910, he left Abilene for Leavenworth, Kansas, which had multiple rail lines and river access for shipping. Soon, Parker had this town on the map for his amusement ride. The city of Leavenworth has built more carousels because of him primarily than any other city in the world. Jerry Reinhardt says Parker built carousels from around 1910 to 1950, building about 1,000 of the machines in Leavenworth. He was an excellent marketer of those rides. He called his carousels that he produced carry us all, hyphenated. And that would be sort of his name. I mean, that was his trademark. His machines were, were easily assembled. Today, Leavenworth has their own museum to honor the ride and the man who built so many of them. This particular carousel was in Iowa, and when acquired by the folks here, it was in need of a lot of help. When Jerry first saw the carousel, it was in pieces. The horses were in rough shape, and he wondered not when, but if they would be able to get it up and running. We worked on it for about 10 years, uh, re mainly restoring the horses, but then we had all this mechanism had to be redone. 
Okay, we ring the bell twice. That signals we're about to start. Jerry and a team of volunteers enjoy starting up the carousel to give rides. They restored the old organ to provide authentic music, and with time and care, they've brought a century-plus old machine back to life. The animals on this carousel are pretty similar to others, with one exception. Well, with Parker, it was almost always horses, but we have two rabbits on this machine, jackrabbits. Uh, because he was raised in Abilene. The carousel may be over a century old, but the fun lives on in the town that built more of these machines than any other place in the world. Traveling the countryside in Leavenworth, Kansas, I'm Andrew McCray. Thanks, Andrew, and you can hear more of his travels at AmericanCountryside.com. All right, when we come back, a generational shift. Fathers and sons, the son's point of view. of U.S. agriculture are farmed families, many generations deep. But it's that transition from one generation to the next that can be tricky. Here's John Phipps. Now, last week I talked about the unforeseen emotions of the older generation and how they can mess up even the most careful transition plan. For those of you of 10 to years, I thought I would add these thoughts. First, you're going to live longer and healthier than you can imagine if you take care of your most important machine. You could have to wait until the nearly ancient age of, say, 45, and still have a 30-year career. For farms like ours, access to land is key, and those old guys who seemingly get all the breaks have been waiting in line much longer. Keep in mind, landowners are older people as a rule, so expect them to prefer somebody they have known for a long time to entrust with their acres, which brings up the delicate task of shifting rented ground to a new generation. We started acclimating our landowners with the idea that my son was already doing much of the work, which they all found believable, interestingly enough, and would follow me seamlessly. Then when multi-year contracts rolled up for renewal, we simply changed the first name. Second, buying out the rolling capital, the machinery, can be an enormous financial hurdle for the oncoming generation. We did this with simple, unsecured demand notes and interest-only payments. My son is less encumbered with machinery debts, and our money stays invested in the farm at better rates than the bank, even though at the time I thought I was being magnanimous. Our whole family is completely aware of this arrangement. They will sort out the notes after I'm gone, just like they will the acres. While this may strike some farmers as incredibly risky, it illustrates another crucial component. No transition will be successful if there is no trust nor respect between the generations. Likewise, both should feel responsible for the other. Transition plans should not be detailed to the point of inflexibility. Stuff happens, both good and bad. Words on paper are important but should not become scripture, in my opinion. If done right, both generations should feel like they're the ones making the sacrifice. A successful transition is seldom easy or painless. Note I haven't brought up communications. It's a valid point, but repeated too much, I think. Don't let perfection become the enemy of the possible. Expect to make changes in the plan. Finally, this is how we are managing it. I trust my son's judgments more than my own now. When I said I was retiring, I was simply referring to turning over my last 200 acres to my son and not filing Schedule F anymore. 
I will work on the farm just like I do now as long as I can, mostly to fill time and to feel useful. Also because I never learned to play golf. Thanks, John. And if you have questions or comments for John, you can email him at mailbag at usfarmreport.com. Well, up next, celebrating a dairy farmer who's heading to the Olympics. We'll have her story next. Well, a U.S. dairy farmer is heading to the Olympics. Ellie Perrier St. Pierre is a Vermont dairy farmer and now an Olympic athlete. During the U.S. track and field Olympic trials, she took first place in the final 1,500-meter race, breaking a 32-year-old Olympic trial record in the process. This marks the first time the farm girl, fueled by milk, will compete in the Olympics. Ellie grew up on her family's farm, where she would head to the barn before school each morning to milk 40 cows. And then she married a dairy producer, and today, they still live on the farm. So mark your calendar. She'll be sporting the red, white, and blue in Tokyo July 23rd through August 8th. Well, that does it this Independence Day weekend. Thank you so much for watching. Be sure to join us again next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.